Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the Yukon Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Daniel Connolly and Dan Madigan, as always. Folks, the calendar has switched to the month of August. Fall sports is on the horizon. We've got schedule updates. Uh, We've got confirmed schedules from women's soccer, men's soccer, football schedule is set, hockey schedule is set. So we've got a lot to talk about. We'll start with the soccer team. Women's soccer will begin its season Saturday, August 21st against Central Connecticut. Uh, the men's soccer team will open its season Friday, August 27th against Bryant. Both teams will be playing their first game in New Moroni Stadium, which we are all very excited to see. Connolly, we'll start with the women's soccer team. What's what's your outlook for them on the season? Well, just first, I am very excited to see New Moroni Stadium because I got to see Elliott Ballpark a couple times in the spring. And to get to Elliott Ballpark, you have to walk by Moroni Stadium. And for as nice as the photos look, it's 10 times nicer in person. It looks like a great soccer stadium. Everything's really boxed in right on top of the field. It's not huge, but I think it fits the attendance that UConn gets. So for women's soccer, they're coming off a really good year this past year. They finally took a step forward under Margaret Rodriguez in her third season. They were incredible defensively. They only gave up a goal in a handful of games. They finished in the top two of the Big East East division. It was split up into East and West for the Olympic sports or specifically for soccer because of COVID and to limit the travel. So they finished in second, earning a spot in the Big East tournament. They got to the semifinals. They couldn't beat Xavier in the Big East tournament, but still a very clear year of progression for UConn women's soccer. I think they're only going to be better this year. They lose some key pieces, but Margaret Rodriguez has been recruiting very, very well the last couple of years. I know that she was really excited about last year's recruiting class. I imagine she's excited about this one. And specifically with last year's class, there are a handful of players in that group that played but weren't necessarily at 100% with such a weird year. They were kind of battling with some injuries. So with a full season under their belt, plus the preseason going into their sophomore year, it's a little weirder than usual because they didn't have that spring season, the typical spring season where a lot of development happens. So maybe a lot of these freshmen won't take huge step forwards, but they still had a lot of freshmen out there playing significant minutes. I imagine that's only going to continue. There's almost certainly going to be a couple of freshman contributors in their class. So I think a very similar season to last year, but with a little more, with more out of conference opponents that kind of helped them build an NCAA tournament case. I still think Georgetown, Butler, Xavier, those are still the class programs in the Big East. I think it's going to be tough for you kind of crack into that tier, but I still think they should be a really competitive team, at least be in the mix for that first spot, even if they're right behind Georgetown. And I think it's very realistic to expect this team to at least be in the mix for the NCAA tournament. I'm not totally sure if this is the year that they can break through and make it. It's so just hard to judge progress because RPI was all messed up last year. So you couldn't really see how close they were to making it, but at the very least 
this year we're going to get a better grasp of that and whether or not they make it, I think they'll be close. Maybe they'll be just on the outside or they'll be one of the last teams in, but I, at the very least, they're going to be in that conversation, especially after the field is back to 64 when it was 48 last year because of the pandemic. So I'm expecting another year of development. We might not necessarily see it in the record, in the scores or anything like that. I still don't really know who's going to score goals for them. That's been an issue for them pretty much ever since Steph Ribeiro and Rachel Hill graduated. I think it's terrifying to think that's like six years ago now, Yeah. which my first year covering the team. So that makes me feel old. It doesn't get better. Right. (laughs) I will remind you. Um, Just, just remind us what's, um, What's the level of competition like in Big East in the Big East compared to the AAC? Um, we know that UConn was really good during its time in the AAC, but also uh, quite dominant in that league. So, how does the Big East compare? Yeah, well, I think UConn was quite dominant the years that they were because they just had very, very good teams. There was one year where my senior year, that same year that I just mentioned, 2016 where I believe their only losses in the regular season were to Rutgers, who was perennially one of the best teams in the country, and Florida State, who I'm pretty sure at the time they played was the number one team in the country. So it wasn't just that they were blowing through AAC competition. They were really running through everybody that they played. I don't know the sport super well to be able to say, oh, this conference is definitely better than the other. I think it's somewhat similar. The last couple of years, the AAC has had one or two very, very highly ranked teams, whether it's one of the the directional Florida's SMU is usually a pretty good team. And it's the same thing in the big East where you've got the top programs. There's a pretty big middle class. And then there's the teams that you should just be beating three, four, five, nothing at the bottom. So I think the competition level isn't necessarily enough of a difference in that UConn's better off in the big East, because if the competition level is similar, you can now pitch to your recruits that, I mean, not only are there road trip is going to be shorter for the program in general. You can pitch to recruits that pretty much every single game that you play aside from maybe one or two longer trips that you take are going to be within driving distance for your families, for other people that may want to come to the games. I mean, this year, the farthest road trip they take is two games in the big East, which are Chicago and Indianapolis. Those are the only ones that you have to get on a plane really to get to. It depends on your feelings on driving to Washington, DC, but overall a very regional schedule, which is good because there's a lot of good teams in the Northeast. So yeah, I don't really know how much of a difference there is between AAC and big East in terms of soccer level, but UConn is almost certainly better off in the big East, even if it's a bit of a step down. I I would say again, from a, obviously a same, not an expert, but seems like the big East has at least, you know, Georgetown has made some really deep NCAA tournament runs over the past few years. I don't know if the AAC had teams that were going, uh, going that deep. Um, Interesting point you bring up, obviously about the kind of recruiting bit. Um, Certainly something that we hope benefits the men's team as well. Uh, What's your outlook for them this upcoming season? Well, they'll play games. (laughs) And, and then what, you know, uh, Uh, well, generally how it goes is the clock winds down from 90 minutes. And then when it gets to zero, the game ends and there you go. That's how soccer works generally. So yeah, I imagine men's soccer is going to do that for most of the season. Interesting. And we have no idea what the score will be um, 
Who will score? Well, you know, to to win games, you have to score goals. And uh, you try not to give up goals on your own end. So whoever has the most goals at the end of the game, they're going to be the ones that win. So at the end of every game, there's going to be some sort of result. I mean, it could be a tie, too. That's in there, too. Um, And they will be playing in a new stadium. And they will have players on the field. So, I mean, a lot going on for the program there. Madigan, what do you think about uh, the upcoming men's soccer season and what their potential is like? Uh, well, it'll be interesting to see if, if Ray Reed will be back on the sidelines. I know he left towards the, the end of last season or the middle of last season, um, took a leave, leave of absence. So I know he, he's definitely coming up on the twilight of his career. Um, he's done a lot for the program and, and led it to some incredible heights. And hopefully he can, you know, if this does end up being his last season, he can go out on his terms and, and have a, a uh, season that himself and, and the team and the program is proud of, but uh, should be an interesting season for sure. I'm hoping to get up there and see the new stadium because I love the old one. And hopefully from, from what I've heard, the new one is just as good, if not way better. So uh, looking forward to checking out some games there. Right, Madigan. And to your point about this being possibly one of his last season, I think it is very possible that we're going to see a lot of program records this year, especially under Ray Reed. So that is a thing. Program records. um, We can be excited to see. Um, So I guess I'll say it, you know, I've got a number of sources very close to the team and uh, they're telling me that the mood is not great. Going to be honest, folks. Don't know what to expect from UConn men's soccer this year. That's what my sources are telling me, you know, take it, take it however you want. Um, I do trust those people who told me that uh, not to expect much from the men's soccer team this year, um, but certainly an exciting opportunity for them. Uh, again, playing in the new stadium, who knows, anything can happen. Maybe a lot has changed uh, since the last time they, they took the field. Hey, Goal Patrol will be back. We will have fans, the best college soccer fans in the country, back uh, in stores, Connecticut. So that and that will be exciting. It's always fun. I I always know that early season buzz. You're you're so you're so hungry for sports. You go check out the soccer games that come before you know things get really really crazy. Everyone should go check those out. Um, and. As we mentioned, while you're there, go uh, just take a peek at the new baseball stadium, which which looks amazing. All right. So that's uh, the UConn Blogs podcast soccer preview. Moving on, we've got NBA action. Um, well, not really action, more like roster activity and transactions. But we know that that can be very exciting. So um, longtime NBA veteran Rudy Gay. Uh, is going to be joining the Utah Jazz. This will be his first stint with that team. Andre Drummond is going from the Lakers to the 76ers, where he just signed a contract. Um, Drummond is uh, teaming up with Joel Embiid to have had some fun Twitter beef. Well, maybe some one-sided Twitter beef over the past few years. Seems like Embiid has actually gotten the best of Drummond quite a bit. Um, so we don't love that for, for our big boy from Middletown, but um, wishing him all the best in Philly. Of course, the, the news we've all been waiting for, what's happening with Kemba Walker. The Celtics traded him earlier this offseason to the Oklahoma City Thunder. I've literally never even heard of Oklahoma City, cannot find it on a map, but 
Um, he has taken a buyout and Kemba Walker is joining the New York Knicks, folks. Um, this is, of course, very exciting. Kemba's a Bronx native, played at Rice High School, such a legend, a Madison Square Garden, all, you know, already etched into the history of that arena. Um, as a Knicks fan myself, I, I never really wanted Kemba on the Knicks because I wanted better for him in his NBA career. But now the Knicks are kind of good too. And they're making good roster decisions according to people who know the NBA better than me. This seems like a good fit for Kemba. I'm sure he'll be really energized and excited by it. I don't believe that Kemba is washed and that, you know, his knees are going to buckle 20 games in this season. I think it's entirely possible that the bubble plus the short off season plus, um, you know, everything else going on contributed to some of his woes. So I am very excited. I hope a lot of other UConn fans are excited to be able to make that quick trip over to New York or, you know, to Atlantic division opponents and be able to go see Kemba Walker play, which, which is pretty awesome. But uh, what do you guys think about his, his long-term potential and what he could do with the Knicks? I think it's a really exciting fit. I know when he ended up coming to Boston, I know that was a big buzz for a lot of UConn fans. And I imagine uh, the half that wasn't thrilled about Kemba going to Boston is probably thrilled about Kemba going to the Knicks. I feel like that's just how it works uh, in Connecticut and, and around UConn. But like you said, he's already a, a legend in terms of Madison Square Garden, maybe one of the most famous moments in the history of that arena, or at least, you know, in the last couple couple decades. So um, I think it'll be a good fit. I, I do think he's probably not a fringe all-star guy anymore, but he's still a really good basketball player and uh, he's going to help the Knicks a lot and they might actually be pretty relevant uh, for the future, which is pretty cool. So overall, I think it's a good fit. I'm happy that he ended up in a, in a good spot and isn't in uh, basketball purgatory in Oklahoma city. Uh, although they're a good, good team. They, trade and, and flip people all the time. So he wouldn't have been there that long anyways, probably, but kudos to, to Drummond and Rudy Gay for getting deals as well. Rudy Gay basically reinvented his whole career, um, was like a basketball outcast when statistics started coming in vogue and was like widely regarded as like the worst good player in basketball and is now like a very successful role player, sixth man type player. And Andre Drummond tried to get a ring with the Lakers Fortunately, it didn't work out, but um, has a decent, decent shot with Philly, depending on how things shake out. So uh, pretty exciting. Good to see that these former UConn players are wanted in the NBA and, and, and have a market and can sign contracts. So um, definitely going to be looking forward to see how, seeing how they perform this season. Yeah, I think that's a good point you bring out just about both Drummond and Gay signed with contenders, you know. Um, so it does mean we'll – hopefully have a chance to see him in the playoffs, see him go deep in the playoffs and, and maybe even grab a title. And yeah, the, the way that Gay has been able to extend his career, I mean, I think he's got to be on season 18 or 19 uh, for, for his NBA tenure, which um, of course really is, is very incredible. Also, of course, Kemba is now leaving the city of Boston. He no longer has to live there. We know that this is, of course, a net positive on one's life. And so it's really no way of knowing what kind of benefit this could have for Kemba, his mental health, his happiness, his ability to get good food. All, all of those things are now much, much different now that he's leaving Boston. 
I also got a Kemba jersey or a Kemba Celtics jersey pretty cheap. So like, I mean, nice wins all around. That is great. Yeah. Go head to your local marshals and get a Kemba Walker Celtics jersey, folks. That's still going to play very well at Campbell Pavilion. No yeah. one's going to give you a hard time if you're rocking a Kemba Celtics jersey at Campbell. So, yeah, I, that's a pretty good value. I might have to do that, do that myself, Connolly. That's, that's absolutely right. I wonder if they have any uh, Oklahoma City jerseys for Kemba Walker. I'll, I'll, get, I'll cop one of those. Rock the thunder. Um, of course, also, speaking of the NBA, we did have uh, James Booknight hear his name called 11th overall in the NBA draft. UConn's first lottery pick since 2012, yikes, uh, when both Andre Drummond and Jeremy Lamb were picked uh, in the lottery. Long, long drought for UConn to get through. I think we saw Booknight, we saw Booknight's stock go up significantly over the course of the pre-draft process. So great for him. A lot of people are excited for this assemblage of talent on the Hornets. So book night pairing up with uh, LaMelo Ball. And uh, I saw someone say they'll be kind of a fun team to watch if you're uh, someone who has NBA league pass, you know, check out, check out a fun, fun, young, talented Hornets team. So um, that'll be good. And then maybe in the future, uh, he can also matriculate over to uh, Boston, Philly or New York or, or some major contender, but you know, I think it's amazing for Booknight what he's done. I think it's really possible his game translates better to the NBA than it even did to the college game. Um, and huge for UConn and Dan Hurley to, to have a draft pick, right? To be like, we took a guy, he wasn't some elite prospect, but we took a guy and he came in and we got him in two years uh, to that point where he's a lottery pick. So um, good for, uh, good for everyone involved. Good for us. Of course, one of the most important things about yourself as a school is if you can place people in the pros, UConn had been struggling at that. So, um, we love to see it. Yeah, definitely great to have UConn guys drafted again, especially in the lottery, knowing very little about the NBA. I just really hated seeing him get picked by the Hornets because that just feels like an organization that is always, starting its newest rebuild it never really knows what it's doing it's always making poor decisions somewhere along the line they're never really that competitive sometimes they'll fall backwards into that eighth playoff spot before previously getting just like obliterated by lebron now probably obliterated by whoever Giannis. are they in the east or anyone else basically so I'm a little disappointed by the team that took him. I would have preferred someone like the Grizzlies or really anyone else that has at least been somewhat competitive in the last 25 years, but still maybe book night can be part of the solution to turn that around. Warriors would have been cool. Yeah. I would have really liked the Warriors. I would have been good with that. Yeah. I was a little surprised that he fell as much as he did. Um, but I don't know. I, I think it's something where we got, sucked into looking at all the mock drafts and all the mock drafts had him pretty much sixth, seventh or eighth, I would say based on up, up the time of the draft. And I was thinking about it. And I think that's just a matter of getting information that he was doing re really well in workouts and at the combine, which he did by all accounts. And, um, but I think people just took that info like too much into account and pumped up his draft stock. Uh, there were some questionable draft picks 
ahead of book night too. So that, that also does it. If, if teams are going to make poor choices, then it's going to leave things, op- uh, leave things open and allow book night to slide. But yeah, it's a, that's a fun Hornets team with LaMelo and, and Gordon Hayward too. So um, they finished 10th in the East last year. So they were right in the mix for that eighth seed. Like you said, Dan, um, they'll probably be a little better this year. And I think book night and LaMelo ball is at minimum, a really fun backcourt and one that they can probably build around for a few years. So it should be interesting to see how he develops. So we mentioned that uh, it has been a while since UConn had uh, an early pick in the NBA draft, Book Knight, um, we hope is breaking the dam, right? And that there are more in the future. Looking at today's UConn roster, um, who, would you, uh, who would you put on the short list of future NBA players? I think you probably have to start with a cook, a cook, just he's almost the perfect modern big where he can get inside. He can, he's big. He's got the size. He's got the length. He can defend block shots and he can also step out, hit shots, hit the three. He's a very versatile offensive player. So he just feels like the type of player that all these NBA teams want to get and want to try and mold. And the fact that he tore his Achilles probably knocked his pro timeline back by a year, maybe even two years. I remember I don't remember exactly when it was, but I remember saying on this podcast discussing how many years is a cook, a cook going to be staying at UConn because it's definitely not going to be four. So in terms of a cook's career, it would probably be good if this is his last year at UConn, because that means he's a very highly sought after draft prospect and teams want him. And just with his size, athleticism and skills alone, I'd have a hard time imagining him not being a first round pick if he has a good junior season here. Yeah, I think a cook is probably the most obvious choice. Uh, I have seen a Damasinogo uh, in the bottom, like last few picks of a few random way too early mock drafts. Um, I also have said it before. I'll say it again. I think Isaiah Whaley has a shot at it squeaking into the NBA. I, I definitely think he's a summer league guy at minimum next year. And I think he's good enough defensively where he could end up knocking around in the NBA for, for a year or two at least. So um, I think those are probably outside of a cook, I'd say Sonogo and possibly Whaley um, are good chances to get NBA looks and maybe Tyler Polly, if he shoots the ball well this season, takes advantage of that extra year, but he's going to be one of the oldest draft prospects ever, him and Whaley, um, if, if he does get drafted. So that is something to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree on a cook. I, I have high hopes for him to, to reclaim his past glory and, and um, you know, the fact that he's also a good shooter at that, at that height um, makes him such a, such a promising prospect and uh, also agree. Sonogo, I would put him second um, for sure. I think, you know, obviously with the freshman too, too soon to tell um, though, though I do think uh, Hawkins is someone who, who could do it. Andre Jackson. Andre Jackson, I was going to say, um, because of the athleticism and uh, I could see him being a, you know, Zach Levine type of player if he can get all of all of his stuff together in that way. And he's got lots of time to it's it's not like um, he's going to be really people are going to be dependent on him highly, um, but uh, he'll have a lot of opportunities, I think, to like shine uh, in this kind of lineup where there's a lot of talent around him. So um, and they're trying to be fast. They're trying to gun. They're they're trying to just be running and jumping and making plays. So 
I would probably put Jackson third for now if I could. Yeah, that's a good point. I think we saw flashes of that in the middle and towards the end of last season where when the ball was in his hands or even when he was being used as the point guard or the distributor, a lot of good things happened. He really showed that he was a pretty good passer. Obviously, the shot still needs some work, but he's an elite athlete and he has a good feel for the game. So um, the the jump shot is something that can easily be fixed and he, he'll never be Steph Curry, but it's something where it can be worked on. So he's at least a respectable shooter and that's going to almost automatically get him an NBA look in some capacity. Also, he's not on the roster yet. So now I'm cheating, but uh, of course we think Donovan Klingon probably has um, at least pretty solid, uh, pretty solidly on the NBA radar at this time. Um, speaking of UConn's class of 22, Dan Hurley and staff made um what we believe to be an excellent addition to the incoming recruiting class. Alex Caravan, a forward from IMG Academy, uh, is announced his verbal commitment. There is a little bit of a disparity in his, in his rating, depending on what service you're looking at. ESPN has him as a top 50 recruit. Uh, 24-7 has him rated a 95 out of 100 and a four-star recruit. Um, and Rivals has him as a three-star uh, I think something like 140 in the country. So either way, you know, we're talking about a class that already has Klingon, already has Corey Floyd Jr. Um, looks like, you know, seems like a solid player. He's got good. Um, he's got a good all around game. He makes plays. He's people seemed to in the basketball universe seem to have good things to say about him. Um, UConn does have a few open spots still in the recruiting class, sort of, kind of. As we've discussed, the roster situation um, is kind of fluid at all times for the next few years. But anyway, solid addition with Caravan. Dan Hurley continues to recruit really, really well. I think that's that's the main takeaway for me. Yeah, I mean, I think Caravan's a great pickup. I like his size. He has the ability to shoot the three, has a decent mid-range game, and, and has some post moves down low. He's a really fundamentally sound scorer. Um, I would say he is probably not the most athletic recruit in that 2022 class, uh, to put it lightly, but he still hustles. He, he plays smart defense, plays decent defense, and he's a pretty good shot blocker. Um, so I think he's going to be able to make an impact at the college level right away. But I am a little concerned about how his athleticism will play uh, at a high major level, but we'll see. And who knows what, what that'll look like after a summer with a high major weight uh, strength and weight program. So he's definitely an interesting prospect. I think the biggest discrepancy too with rivals and the other services, I was thinking about this. Um, it could just be something where a lot of his tape that I saw is from, you know, early on 2019, 2018 could be something where they haven't been able to scout him recently due to COVID. Uh, and that could cause a discrepancy because I've never really seen a huge divide like that. Uh, from one recruiting service to another, they're all more or less the same, but overall a really unique process, uh, prospect. I think Adam Zagoria or Adam Finkelstein called him like one of the most efficient recruits in the country um, and just super effective. So always room for, for guys like that on the UConn squad. And I think he'll be a real asset. I think it's going to be interesting to see how he fits in because I, don't know if his style of play is necessarily what UConn is trying to do, but 
he's a really good player and I'm excited to see what he does in stores. Yeah, just continues the trend of Dan Hurley knowing exactly who he wants on the recruiting trail and going out and getting those exact players. It's worked out like that in the class of 2022 because, I mean, it's not like this recruiting class is still early in the process. It's getting closer to later in the process. But he at least had the guys like Corey Floyd and Donovan Klingon pegged very, very early and just only recently got Klingon, but it was on him for a long time. And obviously Caravan is just, the latest one in that trend. It's just amazing how well the recruiting is going for him and the staff right now, because they really don't seem like they've swung and missed in a long, long time. Yep. I mean, again, but so in love with the roster construction and the way it's, you know, the way it's really solid, the way there's depth everywhere, the way there's um, competition for playing time on every, you know, on every level um, and the way we can kind of see the plan for the future. Right. We're not dependent on one and dones or star freshmen and sophomores coming in. Um, Hurley's really building a team and building um, a future. And, and it's incredible to see play out in recruiting, especially after eight years in the previous regime or sorry, eight years, um, many years in the previous regime where um, we were losing a lot of battles on the recruiting trail. Uh UConn's winning them, beating Big East teams, and uh, really very incredible to see. We're going to take a quick break and then talk Huskies in the Olympics and say goodbye to a very good boy. On top of everything else going on in the sports world, we have the 2020 Tokyo Olympics taking place in 2021. We've got 14 Huskies who were participating in these Olympics. Uh, including participants in basketball, field hockey, and soccer. Of course, as you can imagine, a number of them were women's basketball players. Uh, there were actually two basketball teams that uh, are two, two versions of basketball being played in the Olympics this time. One is a five-on-five, five, one is a three-on-three. Three. We've got Huskies in both. Connolly, tell us what has gone down. Well, it was supposed to actually be 15 UConn athletes in the Olympics. Katie Lou Samuelson was supposed to also be going with the three-on-three team to Tokyo. She helped them qualify. She was training with them in Las Vegas, getting ready to go to Tokyo. And then pretty much 48 hours before they were supposed to leave, she got a positive test back. It got confirmed, and she was no longer able to travel with the team to Tokyo despite being fully vaccinated, which is just a brutal, brutal, brutal turn of events for her. She said in a story on Yahoo today that I read today that she wished that she got injured instead, because at least injuries are a part of sports and you can almost feel that happening. And it's more of a physical thing that you can sense. Whereas this is totally out of your control. She did as much as she could have by being fully vaccinated. She had tested negative the four days prior along with the rest of the team. So it's just a very tough blow for her not to be able to go to the Olympics that close to leaving. But Steph Dolson was also on the team. USA 3 by 3 didn't necessarily blow through the competition to get to gold, but they didn't exactly get slowed down by anyone. They had a single loss that was in the final group stage game when they had already secured their place in the semifinals. They definitely had to earn both the semifinal win and the gold medal win, but it's not like it was a tense back and forth game that hung in the balance. It was more or less just them controlling it 
And although it was close, they did what they needed to do to get the win. So Steph Dolson becomes the 10th former UConn women's basketball player to win gold and the first one to win it in three by three. Obviously, this is the first year with three by three, but still an accomplishment in and of itself. So it was just she was phenomenal on three by three. It's almost a sport built for her because it's so quick and it's so fast. And nobody else in the world in the Olympics had a player of her size, her strength that could really handle her down low. So she just cleaned up on the rebounds, got a lot of second chance points. And obviously we know that Dolson can play away from the basket too. So it was just a very fitting competition for her. And it was great to see Steph Dolson win gold. Just one of the best personalities ever to come through UConn. One of the best defenders, one of the most underrated players ever at UConn. Good to see her getting some due on the international stage. We do love Steph Dolson. So, yes, great to see her get gold. Big Mama Steph. Okay, so who, who else we have in the Olympics? So that was the three-on-three. Three three. I agree. I mean, she must be nasty at, like, you know, 21, playing that in the driveway growing <laughs> up. She was probably, like, the best in her, in her entire town, at least. Um, that's Because that's what three-on-three three looks like, right? It's like behind the arc is two points. You got to bring it back on a rebound, right? That's, that's how the game is played. Yeah. And it's also, like you said, it's the first one to 21 or whoever's leading at the end of 10 minutes. So you can hit like walk-off shots in this game, even if there's still time left. So it is very much in the spirit of driveway basketball. That is fun. That is fun. Uh, Unfortunately, the USA men's team did not qualify. LOL. So embarrassing. So embarrassing. All right, so now on to five-on-five basketball. What do we got? So starting with Team USA, we have five former UConn players on that squad, controversially a little bit. There's Sue Bird, Nafisa Collier, Tina Charles, Brianna Stewart, and Diana Taurasi. Brianna Stewart has just been doing Brianna Stewart things in this tournament. She's been very good throughout the group stage. Once they got into the quarterfinals against Australia, she just took it to another level, led the team in scoring, just total Brianna Stewart, classic domination. Diana Taurasi got hurt in the last group stage game. She hasn't been as impactful as she has been in recent games, but still Diana Taurasi is the type of player you want on the team. Sue Bird has just been kind of classic Sue Bird, lots of assists, not a ton of points, running the whole offense out there. Tina Charles has had a couple really good games off the bench. Hasn't been a major contributor, but similarly, someone that you do want coming off the bench with size, with experience, a nice veteran leader on the team. She's helped them win games. And Nafisa Collier's pretty much there for the experience. She's probably played fewer than 10 minutes in the entire tournament. She hasn't really factored in, but you hope that once you get to 2024 in Paris, she's going to be one of the key players on that team, having already made this squad. Right now they're in the semifinals, but they play tonight as we're recording. So by the time this goes out, they will have already played. And I feel pretty confident saying they would have already won and moved on to the gold medal game where they may play Gabby Williams, who's playing for France in this tournament. Her mom has, I think her mom is actually from France or is very closely tied to France. She's been pretty much, as you imagine, Gabby Williams at UConn, just stuffing the stat sheet. She's been vintage Gabby Williams for the French national team. There's a story on ESPN about her where she said this is pretty much the player that she's wanted to become ever turning ever since turning pro. So she's just been a really solid contributor for France, has been a very key piece in getting them 
into medal contention. Now she can help them get a semifinal win over China, I believe it is. Then she'll at least secure coming home with a medal, probably silver. She ends up playing the U.S. in the final. Whereas if she gets into that bronze medal game, you have to win to even medal. So very good to see her at least in that contention. And hopefully she comes home with a medal at some point. Just hopping in while editing to provide a couple updates on those games we just talked about. Team USA beat Serbia to get into the gold medal game, as I predicted, shockingly, I know. And France fell to Japan, so they will play for the bronze medal. France plays first at 3 a.m. on Saturday night on CNBC. The U.S. national team goes for gold at 10.30 p.m. on Saturday night. That one's on primetime NBC. What happened with um, Team Canada? Yeah, so speaking of teams that thought they were going to win a medal at this Olympics, they were. this was supposed to be the breakout year for Canada women's basketball. They were going to come into the Olympics, and then they were going to be the best team that wasn't named the United States of America. And they just totally face-planted right out of the gates, tripped on a shoelace, fell flat on their face with a loss to, I believe it was Serbia in the first round, recovered with a win in game two, lost game three to a very good Spain team, and then missed out on advancing as the third place team by point differential. Australia had a plus 10 point differential with the same number of total points accumulated. France had a plus seven point differential with the same number of points accumulated. Canada had a plus seven. So a missed three-pointer somewhere in the tournament cost them a trip to the knockout stage. But with the way they were playing, it was hard to imagine them ending up in medal contention to begin with. Kia Nurse, obviously one of the more important players for Canada in the tournament. She wasn't next level, but she had a solid tournament. Aliyah Edwards made the roster as a collegiate player, as the youngest player on the team. She really didn't factor in at all. She played without exaggeration, literally 31 seconds. I don't really know what a coach could have expected her to do in that situation. And just one of your team like Canada, who's not playing well, Aliyah Edwards can go in there, break some bones in the post. How many other countries have a player as strong, as physical, as tough as Aliyah Edwards? So I did think she looked pretty overmatched in the America Cup when she played for Canada back in, I think it was June, but why not at least give her a chance and see what she can do? Give her three minutes. And if she's clearly overwhelmed, you can take her out. The result couldn't have been any worse. So I mean, she was there again for the experience, kind of like Nafisa Collier, but I think it was a little weird that she didn't get any minutes whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just great that she was there. I mean, she's a college student, right? She's about to go back for her sophomore year at UConn after uh, playing in the Tokyo Olympics. Like, that's freaking – and for Team Canada. Again, like, not, um, you know, not just any team, even though I know they didn't didn't have um, the performance that they had hoped for. Um, we've got a couple of men's basketball players in the mix. Um, their teams have both been eliminated, but um, it was exciting to see them in action. I at least got to see uh, one of them recently, and I found that to be very enjoyable. So who are the men's basketball players in there? Neil Skifai, the most famous German in the history of UConn men's basketball's program. With all due respect to Enosh Wolf and Leon Tolksdorf, the two-time national champion, made Germans national team. He finished the tournament very strong. He had double-digit points in his final two games, including in the quarterfinal loss that they had to Luka Doncic and Slovenia. So 
I mean, he got to the Olympics, got to the quarterfinals. Germany's not exactly a power in men's basketball, so it was at least impressive to see him there. And then Gavin Edwards playing for the country that everyone expected him to, Japan, naturally. Of course. He's actually a naturalized citizen for Japan. He's been playing in Japan in their league for a number of years now. So once you get over the the shock of seeing him on the Japan national team, it does actually make sense as you start to look into it. He had a weird tournament. He played a lot in the first game. I don't know if he got injured. It's really hard to find out what happens in these obscure non-US Canada basketball games because there's not a whole lot of English outlets writing about what the Japan men's basketball team is doing. And the Olympic website doesn't really have a ton of information beyond the box score. So I don't know if Gavin Edwards got hurt or if something happened because he played a lot in the first game, didn't play as much in the second game, and then didn't play at all in their final group stage game. They got knocked out in the group stage. I think they finished fourth. They were pretty clearly overmatched, but got in as the host. So Still, again, he was in the Olympics. That's an incredible feat. And I mean, if you're ranking probable UConn, former UConn players that would end up in the Olympics, I think Gavin Edwards would be pretty low on that list. So, yeah, good for him. Good for him for doing it. Um, I was looking yeah. at his stats when, when I was writing the article that he got named to the team and he was tearing up Japan. Like he, he'd yes. just been torching Japan for like, six or eight years he's shooting like 43 percent from three like just lighten it up um and made me realize i i just kept forgetting about it he had a really good senior season at uconn <laughs> he did just doesn't get right. talked about enough i, I right. just feel like it should get talked about more it wasn't great but it was really it was good. good gavin edwards What's wrong with that play started some games played well in many games yeah he was, was a, good at basketball yeah absolutely. he was a good big man in the big east for his last year. That's all you can ask for. Yeah. We'd kill for one of those guys right now. You know, it's just sure, sure. one of those things, but I mean, you know, Isaiah Whaley, right. Right. Come on. Another, <laughs> another NBA prospect. Rather. Um, I mean, yeah, I look, look for me, it was super exciting to see Niles Gafai out there. Um, you know, we watched him mix it up, get a lot of rebounds. I, I remembered how much of a rebounding savant he was his last two years, especially at UConn. Um, he's also been doing great in the German league. They mentioned on the broadcast that he's going to play in, in Lithuania next year at some team that is like super famous and has a crazy, awesome fan base. I kind of want to go to a game if I, to be completely honest, go hang out with Niles Gafai in Lithuania. I swear I would do it, but it was good. You know, blast from the past, enjoyable to see. Um, I, I also want, yeah. Did I say it already that he took a charge on, on Doncic? Did you oh. guys see that play? No, I didn't. Oh, man. It, it was like Giffy was driving and Doncic drew the charge and Giffy just like glared at him. It was like, come on, man. Like, like I could, like I could bowl through you. You're, you're like 200 pounds more than me. Uh, it was, it was pretty good. Good stuff in the Olympics. That's just the basketball players. We've got field hockey and soccer represented as well. Right. Correct. So just to start with field hockey, no surprise that Nancy Stevens program is represented. First, a country near and dear to my heart, Ireland. Roisin Upton, who played at UConn from 2013 to 2017, was an All-American, a two-time national champion, actually has been a very key player for Ireland's field hockey team. So during qualifying, they nearly got knocked out by Canada. They went down two nothing in penalties, came storming back and Roisin Upton scored the game winning penalty to send 
Ireland to the Olympics. And then once they got there, their first ever trip to the Olympics, she scored the first goal for them in the Olympics. So she has the mark of history as the first ever Ireland field hockey player to score in the Olympics. Tournament kind of went downhill from there for Ireland. They got all the way to the finals of the 2018 World Cup and they got bounced in the group stage here in the Olympics. It was just a very tough showing. They never really found their footing. Upton only scored that one goal. Ireland really didn't score a ton of goals beyond that. So it wasn't all on her by any means. And then Cecil Piper was a grad student at UConn in 2018, played for Germany. This is actually her second World Cup. She helped Germany win bronze back in Rio in 2016. She scored, no, she didn't score one goal, but I saw a highlight of it because I was watching the game live and she absolutely should have gotten credit for it. It was one of those plays that might be better described using ice hockey terms where you're screening the goalie and you get that last touch on the puck to send it in. They showed the replay like five times and I'm pretty sure that Cecil Piper was the last one to get her stick before it went in the net and she didn't get credit for it for some reason. So I, she's not getting an official Olympic goal, but according to the UConn blog stats, she did score in the Olympics. So both UConn field hockey players scored in the Olympics. They got to the quarterfinals, faced Argentina, who's the number two team in the world, and just got beat pretty badly. It was three or four, nothing or four, one. It was never really that close. So they go out without getting a medal. Just a very tough matchup in that first round. At least if you get through to the semifinals, you can compete for a medal. But either way, two Olympians for Nancy Stevens will now form her program. Still very good to see. And then arguably one of the biggest surprises of the Olympics in terms of the U- former UConn players is Steph LeBay, the goalkeeper for Canada. She's helped the Canadians get all the way to the gold medal game, upset the U.S. women's national team in the semifinals. She's had just a fantastic tournament for her national team. And their opener against Japan in the group stage, she got whistled for a penalty, got injured on the play, saved it, and then ended up coming out of the game with the injury at halftime, missed their next game, but then returned for their final group stage game, had a couple big saves to help give Canada the the win in that. They advanced on, beat Brazil in the quarterfinals, again, made some big saves late in that game, and then that went to penalties. I think Canada fell behind 2-0 and then again came back and LeBay saved the final two penalties of PKs in order to send Canada through. She didn't have to do a ton against the U.S. The U.S. had absolutely no attack going on for most of the game. She did make a couple good saves and held the one of the best teams in the world normally. They kind of sucked in the Olympics, but two-a shutout, so that's impressive to begin with. And that gold medal game, I believe, is going to be in Eastern time, Friday morning. So by the time you're listening to this, we're already going to know the result. They're going up against Sweden, who's been just on fire in this tournament. They're going to be a really, really tough team to beat. I'm not sure if Canada's going to have what it takes to beat them, but LeBay's been incredible in goal. So when you've got a hot goalkeeper, that's pretty good. You can go a long ways with that. And I've just been continually laughing to myself while watching her play that Steph LeBay, LeBay, was a goalkeeper for UConn women's soccer. And I was a goalkeeper for UConn women's soccer. And let me tell you, I am not an Olympian. So she's doing a little better than I am. We love to see all of these Olympians thriving. It's really pretty awesome. Um, And to see many different countries represented. That's awesome stuff. Hopefully we will have many more the next time there's an Olympics. 
probably in the winter Olympics, we'll have some uh, hockey players, most likely, uh, and maybe some other, some other athletes. What do you got? Yeah, so there is one confirmed player going for the Winter Olympics, Cameron Wong, who's going to be a senior on this year's UConn women's hockey team for China. She's originally listed as from Vancouver, British Columbia, but I imagine she has some parental lineage to China. So at least one confirmed. I don't know how many others there will be. Wasn't there a bobsledder at one of the last Winter Olympics? So I imagine there will be multiple. Should be, and then of course we'll we'll expect many in the in the 2024 games uh, as well. In less pleasant news, uh, the UConn community dealt with a lot of pain uh, over the past 48 hours or so as they found out of the passing of Jonathan the 13th, or uh, the the Huskies' live dog mascot a very good all-white Siberian Husky. He was the mascot from the years of 2008 to 2013 or 14, 14. And, um, you know, some pretty iconic times for UConn football uh, and basketball. And, well, UConn athletics as a whole, really, but uh, so many iconic moments. That was our Jonathan for for a period of time you know when the news hit i it 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 hit me harder than i thought it would you know like we had seen that dog (laughs) at a lot of games and uh yeah very sad and um very good boy and and what a time it was you know for uconn athletics from 2008 to 2014 arguably things changed after that and did not get good again for a while. So um, it was kind of a, uh, an important era that, that, that uh, Jonathan thir- the 13th was the mascot for. Yeah. I mean, I always remember seeing him around at games or on campus when I was uh, in high school, younger than that, going to games with, with my family and stuff. So um, always remember walking through in front of our seats at, at Gamble uh, the, the handlers and, and Jonathan would always kind of hang out in that area. Cause it was right by, I think the North entrance, um, or whatever. But, uh, obviously when I got to college, they had Jonathan 14 as a puppy, but Jonathan 13 was always there and they got very close and they were kind of a package deal. And it was always really good to see them around campus, see them at games. Um, really just, they were the stars of the show on campus. People stopped what they were doing, went out of their way to go, go see them and, and pet them and grab a picture with them. And um, just incredibly sad. Uh, fortunately, li- he lived a great life. And, uh, you know, we, we still have Jonathan 14 as well to kind of carry on that legacy. But it's uh, definitely very, very sad. And I think it's it's a crazy life for those dogs. They they I can't imagine dogs like loud noises or a lot of people and that's pretty much all that they do that they're trained to kind of be around so um always thought that was really impressive too so very sad but uh definitely won't be forgotten anytime soon yeah having a live mascot is great when you see them around campus it's always the highlight of your day it's it's awesome especially dogs like when you have especially an animal as approachable and as easygoing as a dog and treated humanely like a dog, unlike some other schools. It's awesome. And everyone loves it. But then he's like this really suck where 
yeah, these sort of things happen. And it's also really the end of a era where I'm pretty sure Yukon's only had all white Siberian Huskies as their live mascots, or maybe they've had one non all white Siberian Husky, but now with Jonathan 14, obviously he's got the different two-toned colors on him to match the logo more. So it's possible that Jonathan the 13th is the final all white Siberian Husky. So I mean, just on top of how sad it is to lose him, it's really just, it, it just sucks. Like every part of it sucks. And Huskies are very beautiful dogs, no matter what the the pattern of their, of their fur turns out, just, just a very majestic dog. Um, and you know, that was, that was like tens of thousands of people's family dog, like for their time in college. It's crazy to think about really, but um, yeah, it hit, it hit a lot of people and a, really a sad day for, for the community. Speaking of sad things for the community, uh, UConn football will be kicking off in about four weeks after taking the 2020 season off. Uh, mercifully, the Huskies will be retaking the field on August 28th against Fresno State. We don't know a lot about this team, um, which I'm sure Randy Edsel thinks is a, is a very large advantage going into this uh, time in the season. Uh, the Huskies are about four touchdown underdogs going into that road uh, season opener out in California. Um, but hey, look, this is the time for us to, to find optimism for, for the football team. It's it's early August, right? We're getting reports from camp. Uh, we're gonna get some. Uh, we're gonna get uh, some some accounts about quarterbacks having throws with a little extra zip, or senior linebackers taking themselves a little bit more seriously this year. Um, but I think we'll have some reason for optimism around this team. Um, we've kind of you know talked about it a little bit, but I think it it is worth going into. Um, in a little bit deeper detail, the schedule is, is pretty good. Um, and, and remember, this is one of the schedules that, that David Benedict, they all had to scramble for um, because this whole independence thing did only just happen uh, about a year ago or, or, you know, announced two years ago, but that Fresno state game will be tough. Um, and then they've got Holy cross in the home opener on labor day weekend. We're going to hope, not to have a repeat of the 2017 opener where we barely escaped the upset uh, against Holy Cross. They've got Purdue at home the following week, and then they'll be at Army, hosting Wyoming after that, at Vanderbilt, at UMass, Yale, Middle Tennessee, at Clemson, at UCF versus Houston. So that's our schedule for football this year. Unfortunate AAC flavor, but uh, we'll uh, just have to deal with that. Thank you for the money, UCF. Um, but hey, look, guys, whether you like it or not, we're about to have a UConn football game for the first time in 24 months, so or 22 months or something crazy like that. How do you feel? I, I think I'm actually excited. I don't know how good this team is going to be, but the schedule, like you said, Amon, is fun. I do think they're going to be better than we've seen them. The last time we've seen them play football, I know uh, we've talked a lot about over-unders for win totals uh, kind of in our group slack. Uh, and 
I think it's pegged at two and a half right now. Some sites may have it at two, at two even, even though we haven't really seen that anywhere, but we've just heard rumors of it. I think this team is going to win at least two games. I, and I feel pretty confident saying that. Uh, huge, bold prediction, I know. But uh, I think three or maybe even four is really on the table. It's just the way the schedule lines up. Um, I think, obviously, Holy Cross, Army, Wyoming, UMass, Yale, uh, those are pretty beatable teams. Um, and it could work out some things bounce the Huskies way and, and things go in their favor. And that's, you know, four wins or, or they're flirting with the uh, five wins in a, the last game against uh, Houston, there's a bowl berth on the line and we know how that worked out the last time. So um, crazier things have happened. I don't think that's likely, but I don't want to rule it out. A lot of things could happen in this, this crazy year that the program has had. Um, now that I think about it, that first game at Fresno State is just absolutely brutal. Just not playing football for a month or for a whole season, getting everything ready, traveling across the country for week zero uh, to play a pretty good Fresno State program. Uh, that could be really ugly. Uh, and I think it's going to be one of those things where even if the, as long as the result is, I don't know, it, if the result is really bad, you almost have to throw it out. And if UConn plays really well, I think you almost have to kind of throw it out too because it's, it's just such a weird game and UConn isn't going to play another there's not going to be another scenario like that for the rest of the season so um, definitely interested to kind of feel out this new independent schedule I think that Fresno State game is un, an unfortunate byproduct of being an independent program where you can't always pick and choose things uh, as much as you want but if that's the only pr problem that UConn has for the next few years with with independence I think that's a great problem to have. I have an idea. And I think Red, Randy Edsel should seal this when he inevitably listens to this podcast, obviously. But how many quarterbacks are on UConn's roster? Five, right? Or something? Sure. Okay. So each of the first five series against UConn, they should throw out a different quarterback. Fresno State will have no idea what's happening. Or even better, throw out a different quarterback every single play just keep cycling them through and Fresno state will have absolutely no idea what's going on. Stick like Kevin Menza quarterback for one play. Just, just do the most insane things for this game because as Madigan mentioned, or as maybe you Amon mentioned that Fresno state is going to be just as much at a disadvantage as we are trying to cover this team, having no idea what to expect. They have no film on what three fourths of the roster. If they do have film, it's very, very limited. And it is very, very old. I think only two quarterbacks have even thrown an actual pass in a live game. And again, two years old. So how great is that? Just throw every single weird look at them, throw every single player that is even partially able to play in a college game out there because Fresno's a very good team. You're going to have to find a creative way if you want to beat them or keep it close. So why not just go nuts and have a literal quarterback carousel, put all quarterbacks out there at the same time, just go five wide with quarterbacks and then have like Kevin Mensa at, at running back or something like I just go as weird as possible. I do agree. I mean, the, the mood of the Fresno state game very much has to be ex exhibition. You know, this is a, this is a, the, the most tune-up of tune-up games. We're talking about, again, a, a team that has taken a lot of time off. We have no idea what the effects of this time off will be. Uh, and, I, and I think that's really significant. Um, 
in terms of the schedule, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a big part of it is just how much can they avoid those demoralizing losses, you know, those those 55 to 7 things where, you know, they couldn't stop the other team. So, you know, to start to look at it a little bit more closely, Fresno State, again, is going to be a tough game. Purdue is going to be a tough game. That's week three. At Army is going to be a tough game. Hosting Wyoming. Um, you know, there are some, you know, pretty good teams. And then it gets, you know, there's Clemson, UCF down the road. They need to avoid the blowout. We've discussed this a lot. I mean, they need to for themselves. They need to for the fan base so that we can um, palatably watch these games and not want to turn them off and rip our eyes out, you know, two quarters in. We do need to, I mean, you know, again, to look at the team. We will be watching this quarterback situation closely. Um, we know that Krajewski, Jack Zergiatis, and Michael Leone are all kind of in the mix to potentially be the starter. Uh, it, it could be any one of them. And I agree, we will not know after Fresno. Um, we probably won't know after two or three games this year. Um, and Edsel is likely to play, you know, one or two guys back and forth because we have seen him do it, um, you know, against the wishes of, of many of us, maybe. Um, but the quarterback situation is something to keep an eye on. Honestly, across the roster, there are reasons to believe it will be better, I think. You know, and I think that's fair. The O-line, which had gotten to a decent place, actually. The O-line had gone from a real weakness to a point of non-embarrassment, which, again, in our scales, is, is quite good. Um, but the problem was the defense. The, the front seven was was noticeably, you know, just smaller and, and weaker than other teams. And the secondary was still getting absolutely slashed by lots of teams. I mean, the AAC had a lot of good offenses, but still, um, you know, the, the secondary was particularly weak. Um, as people will recall, a lot of folks transferred after the 2019 season, um, including a number of defensive backs. So I think that's something to keep an eye on of just like, you know, is the defense really going to be able to improve? Um, because if the defense is competent, yeah, I do think UConn could land on the higher end of its, uh, you know, potential win range for this season. That's a tough thing, but we do know that that's Randy Edsel's kind of calling card. It is the thing he has been able to, to do well at schools. And we have seen good talent coming in. Even ever since he got here, he was bringing in three-star linebackers. We know Travis Jones is a beast on the inside. So um, I think there's reasons to believe the team will be better. As for the win total, yeah, I'm, 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 if it's 2.5, give me the over for sure. There's two FCS teams. Um, I think UConn can at least eke out wins over those. I know S&P Plus doesn't love UConn right now. I think the, the circumstances, you know, of, of not playing a year and everything going on and last year's weird season mean that I do love S&P and, and I'm a huge fan of, of Bill Connolly, formerly of the SB Nations. But um, I, I think with UConn, we can throw that out a little bit. Um, yeah, I think Bill Connolly has kind of alluded to that too, saying that, you know, just off of how they played in the, how UConn played in the past and how they look in the metric, I'm putting them towards the bottom, but it's kind of broken 
due to UConn not playing last year. And look, we saw UConn football play more than probably anyone else. It's very justifiable that they're at the bottom of the barrel. But I do think there's, like you said, some reasons to be optimistic. Aside from the quarterbacks, I think Kevin Mensa is is legitimate. I think he's one of the better running backs. Um, I was going to say in the American, we're not in the American anymore, but I do think he's, he's a really good running back. One of the best that UConn has had in a long time. And uh, I think he has an outside shot at the, one of the school rushing records. It it would have to be a pretty insane season, but it just speaks to the first three years that he's had, how, how good he's been. Cam Ross was one of the best freshman wide receivers in the country in 2019. So another year under his belt uh, and then, gets underway this year. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with the offense. We've seen how terrible the offense was under Frank Dufry. Hopefully it will be a little bit less worse. We'll, we'll see. It, it's an interesting, interesting season. There's never been anything really like this, at least in our lifetime. So we'll see how it plays out, but it's a fun schedule. Interesting storylines. Even if the team isn't that good, Randy Etzel's contract comes into play towards the end of the season. There's, going to be things happening things changing uh for better or for worse throughout this whole season so it should be pretty interesting to follow right i mean it'll just be exciting to see what this team looks like because we have absolutely no idea i'm not sure if in the history of college football there's been a team that we have less information on in terms of the entire roster it's not like we're just talking about there's one or two classes that we haven't seen it's almost the entire roster that is just a complete and giant question mark which is both very exciting and also just extremely terrifying this season could go in two very drastically different directions i think it's more i'm not by any means predicting this is going to happen, but I don't think it would be a massive upset for this team to become bowl eligible, to get to six wins, even if one of those, or even if two of those wins are against FCS schools, I don't think that is out of the question. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's possible. And probably on the same likelihood, they might not win a game. Like maybe we think that this year off really benefited them. Maybe they just took 15 steps back. Nobody's developed. They haven't actually brought any talent on all the quarterbacks suck. Kevin Mensa can't run more than a yard before just getting tackled by five defenders because all their good offensive linemen left and maybe they don't win a game. And then I don't think that's a realistic possibility either, but I think those two extremes talking about winning six games and going 500 being one extreme is very on brand for UConn football. But I think those two extremes are both equally likely, even if neither of them are all that realistic. I think it's almost definitely somewhere in the middle. I don't think they're going to be a terrible team. I don't think they're going to be a good team, but I think they're going to beat the three FCS teams, including UMass in that group. I think they're going to have a competitive game or two with another school in there somewhere. I saw a line with two flat wins. I would put money on that right now. I think I would feel very confident that they're going to get to two wins somewhere. I think a high prediction I would I would make would be four wins. I think a realistic win, uh, prediction is going to be three just because you beat the two FCS schools and UMass, who is, let's be honest, that is just a program that's always in the mud. So I don't have high hopes, but just progress. Progress is what we need to see. Yeah, we need we need to see progress and again, we they need to just they need to be not in the bottom 10 teams in the country. Yeah. Small yeah, I, that, but that's it for me. 
I do think three wins is the, is the floor for this team. I feel like that's pretty attainable just based on the schedule. And if it's not, then there's probably some bigger problems that need to be addressed. But Dan, you brought up a good point. And I, I don't think we need to really think about this, but for the sake of it being early in the season, a little optimism flowing, um, say UConn does get to six wins and they, they win they, they beat UMass uh, or not UMass. They beat Yale and Holy Cross. They wouldn't be bowl eligible if they finished six and six, right? Cause you have to, cause so. they only count one FCS win. We don't have to actually worry about this. This is more of a rhetorical thing, but I don't, I don't have to win seven. No, I think it does. I think they you need to get a waiver one. for it. Yeah. Right. And, and, and if the, t- if it's between UConn and Louisiana Monroe, they'll, well, actually, that that has a rabid fan base. Bad example. Raging Cajuns, they'll travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very they'll bad travel. example. But just uh, the uh, just University of Louisiana now. They don't even have whatever the extra. Yeah, or I think really, Lafayette's the Raging Cajuns, right? UConn oh yeah, and yeah. Forest. Right. Just kidding. UConn and LA Tech. Sure, sure. I'm gonna start Depending this at swaggy. I'm gonna start the swaggy Z hype train. I I've been a big swaggy Z guy, Zach Zergi, Jack. Zergiatis, I think he's going to win the quarterback competition, and I expect big things. I really liked the very limited stuff that we saw when he wasn't throwing the ball to the other team. But he, I mean, he was a true freshman. Very few true freshmen are going to end up doing well throwing in there as a starting quarterback. So I liked what I saw. Hopefully, he just doesn't prove me wrong immediately or doesn't end up as like fifth on the depth chart. That would probably not be great, but I'll start that going now. Hey, they don't call him Swaggy Z for nothing. That's right. Well, that's going to do it for us, folks. Thank you all for listening.